Well, good morning, and let's start our time in worship around the Word of God in prayer that His Spirit might speak to our hearts this morning. Our gracious God in heaven, we do open up our hearts to you together in singing these praises because of who you are, because you're a God of grace, you're a God that brings us hope through the birth of your Son, you are a God that gives to us a Savior, the Creator Himself has come to us to redeem us, to restore us, to forgive and cleanse us, and to give us an eternal inheritance. So we gather this morning as your people, so blessed by your grace and mercy, that all we can do is respond in gratitude and love and adoration of who you are. Thank you for being our God and Father. We are grateful for the spirit that you give to us as believers. And we ask now that the spirit would be active in our hearts and minds, to direct uh, not only my teaching, but direct our hearts to receive what you've written in your word and preserved for your people, that we can learn and grow by it. Sanctify your church this morning because we've gathered under your presence and for your glory and for the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, clearly, if you're looking at your note sheets, you know we're going to take a bit of a pause from our Roman study. We are actually in a pretty good place to do that. We just finished the sixth chapter, and before we dive into Romans chapter 7, and we enter into our Christmas season, this is a good time to kind of capture what we spoke on last week from Romans 6, and as well our communion service, Galatians 4, which was the gift of God, the gift that he's given to us in his son. And here we are at the advent of our Christmas season, where we recognize a bit more fully this gift that God has given to us. So we're going to take this opportunity to step out of Romans, and we're going to step into Isaiah this morning. Um, But what I've found in looking at this text before us in Isaiah 9 is very similar in its tone and its purpose from what we've been looking at and seeing in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6, that not only are we a people of grace, but grace has a depth of meaning for it. We come under a ruling of grace, the reign of grace, and that has practical implications for our lives. We don't disregard sin. We're very aware of sin. And we put aside sin. We're no longer slaves to it, but now we are slaves to righteousness. There are practical implications here for us as believers. The law has become very important to us, God's law. We don't put aside the law. We don't ignore sin, but we become very active in our union with Christ. This is what Paul has been writing about in Romans chapter 6. And with very much the same thought in mind this morning, it's my hope, and you can tell by the title where I'm going with this, that there is something to the Christmas story, the narrative of the birth of Christ, that has a depth of meaning for us in a very practical way. And we're going to look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 9, this week and next week with very much that thought in mind as a Christmas proclaiming people, uh, people that are proclaiming the birth of God's Son as a gift to us, what does that mean to us? How does that uh, cause us to respond? What do our lives look like because of this gift that God has given? That will be the sense at which we're approaching our subject this morning. In fact, what we're saying here is that our faith is more than theoretical, It is practical, and it's meant to be so. It's a practical faith that we're looking at. 
For our study this morning, the challenge for us in looking at the birth of Christ will be to show how it is to affect our daily living, what I'm calling Christmas living this morning. God sent his son for a purpose, and this purpose affects how his people will live under his reign of grace, under this gift that God has given to us. Um, I wish to emphasize this because most of us know that Christmas time is quite often a very sentimental time for Christians. It is a season that is filled with lots of traditions, lots of charm, what I like to call the warm and fuzzies. And I like the warm and fuzzies of Christmas. I'll have to admit that. I love the colors. I love the sights. I love the traditions. I love the music of Christmas, the special events. But like most of you, I also love what this season represents. I love the idea of the gift that has been given to us, that we have a Savior, and the Savior gives to us hope, a hope that the rest of the world doesn't have, but we have a hope that we can give to them. So the important reality for us to keep in mind is that our traditions and our sentiments this time of year, they're not ordained by God. They're not written for us in Scripture. So whether or not somebody keeps the same traditions or not about Christmas is not really the point, is it? I just heard uh, on the news just a couple of weeks ago that because of the whole issue going on in Israel, between Israel and Gaza, that the Palestinians who have control of Bethlehem have refused that they're going to put up a Christmas tree this year because they don't like what Israel is doing to Gaza. Well, shame on the Palestinians for taking that attitude, but who cares about the Christmas tree? That's the reality. We have something more than the sentiments. We have something more than the traditions to rejoice in, and that is the actual gift of Christmas, it is the Son, Jesus Christ. And I say that because we can become very attached to these traditions as if they represent something of a spiritual condition. If you don't put up a tree, if you don't have lights, if you don't send cards, are you really that spiritual? Do you really get it? Do you really understand what Christmas is about? Again, the traditions aren't the subject here. The Word of God takes us to something more substantial for us that I hope we embrace as we look at this critical prophecy regarding the sending of God's Son. I was just reading this week that the early Puritans here in America refused to celebrate Christmas and they deliberately worked on December 25 to protest what they felt was wrong with this holiday. And it's because of all the paganism and the other things, the attachments that were being woven into this holiday that weren't Christ. So they did a bit of a protest. In England, in fact, a law was even passed in 1644 by the Puritans that made Christmas an official workday, mandating you're not going to do this holiday, you're going to work on that day. And they outlawed apparently cooking plum pudding. You know, I've heard the plum pudding story and all the traditions. I've never had it. I don't know what it is. It doesn't even sound that good to me. And mincemeat, pie, you couldn't couldn't make that on the holidays in this particular law in England in 1644. So does it really matter if a believer sets up a tree or not or puts up lights or even celebrates December 25? No, it doesn't because that's not what this is about. The point I wish to make here is that extra-biblical traditions are not required as a display of our genuine appreciation for the birth of Christ. Rather, it is what we believe about the testimony of Scripture 
with regard to Christ's birth and how we respond to him based on that revelation. How do we respond to the gift of the Christ child as he was given to us? If Christmas is about God bringing his son into the world to accomplish a work on our behalf, how is my life transformed by that? How is my life changed by who I know, about what I know of this child to be, and why he is a gift to me? Do I understand? Do I, do I change? Do I transform under this knowledge? The focus of our study is going to come largely from two verses in Isaiah chapter 9, but we're going to look at the first seven verses. If you would join me there in Isaiah chapter 9, the first seven verses really set a necessary context, even though we're going to set up camp in verse 6 and 7 this Lord's Day and next week as well. And honestly, this week is going to be a bit more preparatory, more of an introduction and a stronger application next week. But follow along as I read chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 1 to 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he, God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Then verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is a marvelous prophetic text where God promises to send a child who will come as a blessing, who's going to bring gladness, and who will come to serve the purpose of God that he is very, very passionate about. As verse 7 says, the zeal of the Lord is about this thing. But within the account of this child, God's people are to learn what life will be like because of his coming. It is a passage that I believe will teach us, if not by implication, it will teach us as believers how we are to live because of this child's coming and because of who he is. The previous chapter ends in chapter 8 of Isaiah. It ends with a picture of a land in anguish and darkness. And this is where chapter 9 picks up on in verse 9. The time of darkness that it's speaking about here is Israel, especially Judah, being in sin against the Lord under King Ahaz. This is a king that led Israel, and Judah in particular, into great rebellion against the Lord God. And by that rebellion, they had integrated themselves with the pagan nations around, idolatry, worshiping false gods, to the point that God brought armies against them. So we see as we open up in chapter 9 and verse 1, the land of darkness is a description of the depravity that Judah was in. 
Jerusalem is overcome with wickedness and rebellion against the Lord God. But this darkness is also speaking about the anguish, the oppression that they are under because God brought them under his judgment. And then we see in verse 9, at the same time there's this darkness and gloom, God makes a promise. He's not done with this people. And this promise is going to be fulfilled as we get to verse 6 and 7 on this child, this one person. God is going to do a work. So we're going to be looking at this child and how we respond to this child, beginning in verse 6, and we're going to refer to the context of the first five verses as well as we make our way through these two verses this morning. I'm going to refer to first the child's coming, though, in verse 6. This is where we begin. Christ comes, and who is he? After the first five verses describe God's plan to bring hope to his people, in spite of the darkness, in spite of the anguish and gloom, verse 6 opens with these words describing how God intends to accomplish bringing his hope to this very dark people. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. God is informing his people that his light is about to shine on them through a child, a son that will be given to them. Now, the New Testament narratives on the nativity bring to light the fulfillment of what Isaiah is writing about here in chapter 9. So I want to refer to Matthew chapter 4 for just a minute because nowhere in Isaiah 9 do we hear the word Messiah or do we understand the word Jesus Christ or do we know who this child is? But Matthew makes clear who we're talking about. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, as he's just beginning to open his earthly ministry, these are the words that are spoken through uh, Matthew's account in verse 12 down through verse 16. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. This tells us that what Isaiah is talking about in chapter 9 is Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God. That much we've known every time Christmas comes around and we quote or we sing about or we hear Isaiah chapter 9, you and I instinctively know this is the Messiah. How do we know that though? Because God's word tells us so. It gives us a specific name and a person to this mysterious child and son in Isaiah chapter 9. So God is going to do his work through Jesus Christ, the chosen Messiah of God. It lets us know Isaiah was predicting the birth of Jesus Christ as God's promised chosen one. He'd be the one who would bring God's light once again to his people. He'd be the source of their gladness as we just read about in Isaiah 9. He'd be the source of removing the gloom that they were under. He'd put an end to their oppression. He would bring about deliverance and peace. And the emphasis of this opening prophecy is that God himself will do a work for us in bringing his Messiah to our world. This person, this child, this son is then destined to accomplish God's purposes. So we want to look at this child for just a moment. Number one, 
because he's declared to be a gift. He will be a gift that is given. A child is coming. The son is going to be given. God is doing this. He's giving this person to his people. And therefore, we recognize he, the child, will be a gift from God. And what we see in the context of Isaiah chapter 9, we cannot miss this. It is a gift of God's graciousness. It is a gift of his gracious character. The context of this passage in Isaiah chapter 9 is that God is doing something for a people who are walking in the light. It doesn't say that, does it? For a people that are doing good things and charitable deeds. An intelligent people that have a great deal of potential. This chapter starts out in an entirely different context, doesn't it? God is going to shine his light on a people that are in darkness. And again, going back to the previous chapter, what does it mean by that darkness? This is Israel in open rebellion against their God. They've turned to idolatry. They've turned to all the paganism that are around them. A land that is filled with sinfulness, Israel has become that. They've turned away from the Lord God, turned to the ways and worship of the pagan nations around them. God could just as well be absolutely done with this people. And in fact, he has brought oppression on them. Military encampments around have threatened their existence and brought great trouble and anguish and gloom to this land. This is the context in which the light has now come. That's grace. This is unmerited favor of God that he wouldn't even do such a thing. And to highlight this even further, the gracious gift of God's work is toward, pointed toward the northern part of Israel. It's not even down at Jerusalem or Judah, though Israel, uh, Judah and Jerusalem were evil enough, again, under King Ahaz. But God is going to bring his light where? To the northern part of Israel, Zebulun, Naphtali, where the regions of Israel are most heavily influenced by paganism. So much so that Galilee to the north was considered the land of the Gentiles. This is Israel territory. This is a Jewish people, but it's considered the land of what? The Gentiles. This is heavily influenced by paganism. And that kind of multi-diversity in culture is not, was not to Israel's credit. Israel had allowed non-Hebrew people, cultures, cultish religions to infiltrate its land and pollute God's people with their defilements. It was the darkest region of Israel in regard to sinful paganism and regard to it being most heavily opposed from military standpoint. It was oppressed by the nations who were holding them in captivity. Yet here is where God would choose to first bring the light of his hope to. A hope of deliverance, of peace, and gladness. That's really the heart of the Christmas story. It's where it begins in the Gospels with Joseph and Mary. They're not inhabitants of Bethlehem. They're not inhabitants of Jerusalem. Where do they hail from? Nazareth. Nazareth was considered to be the armpit of Israel. And when Jesus grew up and entered into his ministry years, where did he start his ministry? Where was most of his ministry accomplished? Galilee, the land of the faithful Jews. No, it's Galilee, the land of the Gentiles. This is a land that was darkened with sin and oppression. 
when Jesus was first talked about among his future disciples. And they began rumbling about, I think Messiah has come. Remember in John chapter 1, where we didn't go in our opening reading this morning, by the way, but Philip had come to Nathanael, remember, and he said, hey, I think we found the, the Messiah, the one that the prophets have talked about. It is Jesus of where? Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's response was somewhat surprising in light of their presumed knowledge of the prophets, which had to include Isaiah chapter 9. But Nathaniel said, can anything good come of Nazareth? Because every Jew know it was an armpit up there. And they didn't see Messiah coming out of Nazareth. In fact, when the wise men came to Bethlehem, or to Jerusalem, Herod had to go to the priests and say, where is the Messiah to be born? It wasn't Nazareth. Oh, go look in Bethlehem. But this tells us the Jews didn't see any farther in prophecy to see Isaiah 9 and what it was promising. Because this is where the child's going to come out of. This is where the light is first going to shine. It's up north in the darkest part of Israel. Can anything come out of Nazareth that's good? Well, in God's hand, yes. That's where he chose to do his work. That's where he chose to bring the light, to bring the hope for Israel. And further, Nazareth was considered to be so morally wretched, so engrossed in moral depravity and Gentile paganism, that in spite of Nathaniel's response, it's surprising because Isaiah 9 speaks directly to the light of God coming here. It, it catches us off guard. At least it ought to. It is a part of prophecy that the Jews hadn't taken hold of or hadn't understood or hadn't anticipated. And again, adding to this, the ministry of Jesus largely took place in this area. This is what Isaiah 9 was prophesying. God's going to start the work here. The work of light. Redemption is coming. And I think God is making very clear to us that he's not interested in man's contributions here. If salvation is going to happen, it's going to happen by his grace alone. Man has no part. If God's going to do a work of light and hope and salvation and redemption, God is saying, I'm going to start in the worst possible place so that man can't take credit for it. This will be all of him. It's all of grace. So God chose to bring the gift of his son here as a testimony that that's what salvation will be all about, his gracious character. Secondly, we not only recognize this child is a gift, but we recognize he is a child. I want to emphasize that. He is a child or a son. So in addition to the coming of Messiah being a gracious gift of God, verse 6 also informs us that God was sending help through a child or a son. You and I understand what this implies. God is going to bring his help through a man. It's prophesied of the humanity of God's Messiah or that God would bring his light to us by sending a person that can help us. This would not at all be that stunning were it not for the fact that a name has been given to this son. Right here in verse 6, he will be called the mighty God. That's where this gets a little troubling. God, a child, you and I understand this in part of the Christmas story. This is the incarnation, right? 
But if you go back two chapters, Isaiah had already prophesied of this in chapter 7, verse 14, because this also is a familiar part of our Christmas story. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, that in itself doesn't mean that Emmanuel was God. It just is declaring God with It's like Joshua. God saves. That doesn't mean that Joshua was God coming to save Israel in the Old Testament. So that in and of itself doesn't necessarily say this child is God. But Isaiah 9 does. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 10, just one chapter over, and you look at verse 21, that same name, mighty God, is applied to God himself. So we know then from Isaiah chapter 9, this child who will be called mighty God is a person that is God. And here we see the mystery of the incarnation beginning to unfold in God's plan. Gabriel's visit with Mary in Luke chapter 1 confirms this same theological revelation. After Gabriel announced to Mary that God had chosen her to give birth to a a son, and she was to name that son Jesus, Mary asked, how is this going to even be possible? I'm engaged, but I've never been with a man. Gabriel's response let her know not only how this would take place, but who her baby would be. This is what he told Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason... The holy child will be called the Son of God. Where Isaiah 9-6 tells us that the mighty God will be given to us, and Gabriel tells us that this child will be the Son of God, what is being prophesied is that God would come to us as one of us. God is coming as a man, Isaiah 9 prophesies. He'd be born into humanity as we are born. He's coming as a son of mankind. And that becomes one of Jesus' most well-used self-expressions, right? I am the son of man because he was born into humanity. This is declaring, again, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You and I debate the cults because they like to take the deity of Christ out of Jesus. It's the creator God that was given to us in the Christ child, our redeemer, And our Savior is God himself. And that's a central truth of the gospel. It's one we cannot compromise on. Jesus Christ is God. It's the deity of Christ. And if you ignore the deity of Christ, you don't have a gospel any longer. But along with his deity, the humanity of Jesus is important for us to understand, to believe, and be redeemed by In John's first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, the Apostle John writes these words. Listen carefully to what he says. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. They are a spirit of Antichrist. John is making clear that God came to us, but he came to us in a body of flesh. You deny that humanity... You are denying the gospel itself. You are denying belief in God. You are antichrist. So this is an essential doctrine to the Christmas story and to the gospel itself. To deny the incarnation is to deny God. Man has sinned against God. 
And if there's to be any hope to bring sinners to salvation, restoring man to fellowship with God, it has to be that sinful man is going to be represented in some way by man. But that man has to be without sin. Otherwise, he can't help us. And since all of humanity is born in sin, God has to step in on our behalf. So the light is promised to come into the darkness. It was necessary that God represents us. And he did so as a man. I'd like to turn you to Hebrews 2. Because in Hebrews 2, and again in Hebrews chapter 4, there's some amazing truths that are shared to us about this incarnation or God coming to us in flesh that help us understand why this is necessary. And there are two predominant reasons that I see here. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, it says, Therefore he, meaning Jesus Christ, had to be, this wasn't an option, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He took on our humanity and became like us in all areas, so that, here's the purpose for that humanity, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And then if you turn to chapter 4 and verse 15, it says that he, Jesus, was tempted in all areas as we are, yet he did so without sin. He received that temptation without sin. What Hebrews is telling us is two very important things here about the incarnation or the humanity of Christ. Number one, it was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. He had to make propitiation as a man for us. In other words, when he took on flesh and he was nailed to the cross and our sins were laid on him, he satisfied, he propitiated the wrath or the judgment of God against our sins. It was essential for us to be saved. He had to take on flesh. But notice the second reason for that humanity. It was so Jesus, God himself, could have a special sympathy for our weakness. Hence, he was tempted. He faced every pressure we have faced. Yet he did so without sin. I think to some degree this is what Paul is writing in Romans chapter 6. We have been raised up in Christ, right? We now have the ability in our union with Christ, to not sin. Jesus, as our high priest, shows us, see, I was tempted, I did not sin. And we could say, well, yeah, but you're God. We've been raised up with Christ. We're not God, but we have God. He indwells us. We are in union with Christ. Jesus is showing, I can sympathize with them. I know how they feel. I felt the pressure of temptation. I know, I know what goes on in their minds. I know what they feel in their hearts. I know the desire and the longings, but he did so without sin. So we see two very amazing truths there about the humanity of Christ. Number one, it was necessary for our propitiation. We all understand that by the light of the cross. Our sins had to be forgiven by his humanity dying for us. But do we take into account how he sympathizes. He's our high priest. He represents us before God. He knows our weaknesses. He felt our pressures. The humanity of Messiah was essential to make propitiation for our sins and to provide a throne of grace to help us in our time of need and our weakness. We have a good high priest. And he represents us knowing what we go through. He understands 
our weaknesses. And that's an essential nature of the incarnation. This is the light that has come to our darkness in a human child that God gave to us on that very first Christmas morning. And I think a passage that goes so very well with this is Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus Christ willingly set aside his glories, and he took on flesh, and he put aside his own majesty for that moment so that he could receive our sins and suffer and die, even the death on a cross. That's the amazing picture about the incarnation. This gift that God was giving to us was with a child. And third, I want us to know that this child will be for us. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. He will be for us. Isaiah's prophecy declares that this child is born for you and I. But who is this us? Is this all of humanity? Is Christmas about making the whole world coming under this hope? Making everybody glad? Sometimes the Christmas music implies that. This is something that the whole world is going to appreciate. Well, not only does Isaiah 9 not tell us that, but the gospel tells us the opposite as well. No, this light isn't for everybody. This hope isn't for everybody. This gladness is not for everyone. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 9, I want you to notice, verse 2, the people who walk in darkness, they see a light. Those who live in a dark place, the light will shine on them. And you will multiply the nation, verse 3. You shall increase their gladness, and they will be glad in your presence. There is a specific people that this child has come for. It won't be for the entire world because we know the entire world will not be saved. Most will come under judgment. A few find the narrow path to glory. That's the story of the gospel. And Jesus himself taught in John chapter 3, he said, I am the light that has come into the world. Steve read about that in John chapter 1. He is the light that has come into the world. But Jesus said in John chapter 3, men saw the light, but they hated it because they preferred their deeds of darkness. Isaiah 9 is telling us, no, there's a people that are in darkness and they see the light and they go to the light and they rejoice in it. And they're glad to be in the presence of the light. Jesus is saying there's a different people that see the light. And they actually hate it because they love their deeds of darkness. Just because the light of God has come into our world in the Messiah does not mean that all men will benefit from his light. It is only those who are pleased to come to his light that are going to be saved by it. These are the ones who come by faith to have their darkness exposed, to have that darkness cleansed away, and then to walk in the light of his truth. The Son of God is given to those who come under the governance of his Son, and they're rejoicing, they're glad in their hearts for doing so. They're glad to be in his presence. The prophecy of Isaiah 9 foretells those who recognize their sinful condition before God their hearts are awakened to the saving light of Jesus Christ and they come to him in faith and repentance, trusting him as Lord and Savior. 
These are the ones that are uh, coming under that light, and they're blessed by it. So in verse 6, when it says, for a child is born to us, it's to those that receive that light, that receive that child by faith. This is a picture of you and I as believers, even as much as it is the Jewish believer. But what is this governance that we're talking about in verse 6? A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and then we're going to come under the government that rests on his shoulders. This is where it takes us to the second part of our study this morning, the child's throne. This again is a study of this child and what he has come to do and how we live under that. The description of this child goes on by talking about his ruler, his reign as a king. Verse 6, the government will rest upon his shoulders. Verse 7 adds, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That is a description clearly of a kingly throne that Messiah will occupy. And while it is a future description at the time Isaiah 9 is written, it has both a immediate future and a far distant future for those that would read Isaiah chapter 9 at that time. But for us today, there is both a present and a future reality here. For believers today, the moment we come to faith in Christ, we are brought under the reign of his grace. And that's what we've learned about in Romans. But what, what much of this passage describes is also a future revelation of Messiah's reign or his throne, even for you and I. We're looking ahead to what this passage is talking about. So let's what, consider together what is described in this governance of Messiah's throne. First, he will govern completely. He will govern completely. A child is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. All will be on him. He will bear the authority and the supremacy and the sovereignty over all. Nothing is left out from under his governance. And in truth, we can say that today Jesus Christ is sovereignly ruling over all. When he ascended to the Father after his redemptive work on earth was completed, he was seated on his throne at the right hand of the Father. There are several passages in the New Testament that tell us this, including Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, which says, We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. When Jesus Christ finished his work on the cross, walked out of the empty tomb, and ministered to his disciples, he then ascended to the Father. Where did he go? Did he just go to hang out with the angels in heaven? Well, no, according to the New Testament, he was seated at the right hand on his throne of majesty in the heavens. So that as the disciples watched Jesus disappear into the cloud, two men, which we assume were angels, let them know that Jesus would come again just as they saw him leave. And this is what you and I anticipate. Jesus Christ is coming again. Well, Jesus rules over all today, we also understand not all have submitted to his will and to his voice. And though he is on the throne, he has permitted that for a season. This is a season where he anticipates the world com um, coming to his gospel. Those that he's called to himself, or the Father calls to the Son. This is a time of salvation for the souls of men. But he is coming to the earth again, and the word of God tells us that when he does, he's going to vanquish all of his enemies, 
and will reign on the earth very differently than we see today. Because under the sovereign rule of Christ on the throne right now, he allows wickedness to continue for a season. Secondly, he will not only govern completely, but he's going to govern appropriately. Appropriately. What is yet future will be a sovereign reign over the whole earth where the government of the world will be fully on him to rule and he will do so appropriately. There will be no limits to his rule as there is today. Evil men continue to govern on the face of the earth presently. But the day is coming when Jesus returns and he will establish his kingdom on earth. And Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, that day when it comes, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess. And Paul did nothing more than to quote Isaiah 45. The Old Testament prophets declared that. The day comes when every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess the truth of who he is. Jesus will govern according to his peace. This is what Isaiah 9 is telling us. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. It is a description that we're going to look at more fully next week because he is the Prince of Peace. But I want us to note the terms of peace under his administration will not be anything like what our world thinks of peace today. Because when men and nations enter into peace talks, always There have to be compromises made and terms where both sides can accept whether they hold the same values or not. They have to agree on some terms. Compromises must be made. When nations enter into war or neighbors are in conflict or the differing races of humanity embrace biases toward each other, When opposing ideologies confront values that they regard as wrong, if peace is going to be established in the here and now between any of these, both sides must accept a measure of compromise and a willingness to accept opinions that are not their own. It will not be so with Jesus Christ. The terms of peace will rest entirely on him. It will all be on his shoulders. The authority of peace will be executed by him alone. And this is because he alone is righteous and just. When Jesus Christ steps onto the world scene, all will submit to his perfect justice and his righteousness. Every determination that he establishes will be according to truth. He'll not negotiate the terms of his reign, or of his peace, because he alone comes with that absolute righteousness. There will be no councils of men that will be needed. There will be no United Nations or peace conferences. Our world will have the Prince of Peace to rule over us, and again, all will kneel before him. All will confess him. They will submit to his will. Isaiah adds that this throne is also connected with the throne of David. And God had previously foretold of Messiah, he will occupy the throne of David. And you could reference 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God had made a promise that through David, Messiah would come and occupy his throne. David, we know, was a picture of Christ. Not a perfect one. But he represented a good and obedient king who faithfully shepherded God's people. He is said to have a heart after God. 
but we know that David had a sinful heart as well. He did not rule perfectly. Yet the one prophesied by God to come and occupy David's throne would rule in perfection. He would do so in righteousness and justice, Isaiah 9 says. He will bring true peace because he is the Son of God. He's the mighty God. An interesting part of the nativity that we don't often take into account is that both Matthew and Luke give us a genealogy of Jesus Christ that links him to the prophetic throne of David. Now, Matthew's genealogy, as many of you know, in chapter 1, traces the lineage of Joseph, who is the adoptive father of Jesus, back to David and even beginning at Father Abraham. Yet Joseph, we know, was not the actual father of Jesus, right? Because God was. And therefore, Jesus was not a blood relative of David through Joseph. But he was legally entitled to sit on the throne of David through Joseph as his adoptive father. Joseph was in the Davidic line through David's son, Solomon. But if you go to Luke chapter 3, on the other hand, it traces the lineage of Mary, who is actually the mother of Jesus, back to David, even going back to Adam. But she was also in the Davidic line through David's other son, Nathan. Now, Luke writes that Jesus was presumed to be the son of Joseph. He was presumed to be, but was actually the son of Mary by blood. Mary's father was Eli, the true grandfather of Jesus by birth. Joseph's father was Jacob. Two two, uh, different lines in the same family tree. Mary, then, was a blood relative to David, making Jesus a blood relative of David through his son, Nathan. This all sounds kind of complicated, but what makes this even more difficult is that we turn to Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 30. God pronounced a judgment against David's line. Because of the wickedness of King Jeconiah, God says, enough. There will be no more children out of you that are going to sit on the throne of David. That's in Joseph's line. Joseph was the legal guy that gave Jesus the right to sit on the throne. How is God going to resolve this? Well, it comes through Mary, who actually is a blood relative of David, making Jesus a blood relative. And it it bypasses necessarily the judgment or the condemnation that God put on David's line. It's through Jeconiah that the Davidic line ended until Jesus. He resurrected, and if you think about it, he's the only one that could then fill that prophecy that Messiah would sit on the throne of David because David's throne was cursed until Jesus came. This is one of the amazing things about the Christmas story. Only Jesus could be the one that sits on the throne of David. Only Jesus has the legal right to be there. Jesus was not directly related to Jeconiah through Joseph, so he wasn't in the curse. But he was directly related to David through his mother Mary. Everything about the throne of Jesus Christ was and is appropriate, as will his perfect reign be as well. And a third thing to understand here from the prophecy is that he will reign eternally. He will govern forever and ever, as it says in verse 7. From then on, and forevermore. There's not going to be an end to the reign of Christ. 
And because of this, God declares that his son will sit on the throne of David eternally. Where we we read that there will be no end to the increase of his government, it means that nothing will not come under authority. There's not going to be anything that doesn't submit to him. Nothing will be kept out from him under his governance. Nothing and no one will not submit to him, and this will be forever and ever. The eternal throne of Jesus Christ assures the believer that when we're part of his kingdom, it means that there can never be an enemy, there can never be a force that will overthrow or that could possibly disrupt the peace that we will know under his reign. Think about our circumstances in the world today. Think about if you were a citizen of Israel right now. Or even here in the United States, we think we're pretty safe and secure, but are we really? We've seen in the past century several world wars when our security, our nationality, and our freedom was threatened. We are never going to know this kind of peace that we can know in Christ Jesus. He will forever be on the throne, and the entire authority rests on him, which means we'll never have to face the risk of losing it or an enemy coming and taking away our peace. This is a forever thing. Being part of the kingdom of God means that we will forever be secure under the perfect reign of his son who cannot be overthrown and who will not permit any evil or threat to the people under his care. This is a picture of our security, our future. If you belong to Christ, you're under this king. And things are a little bit iffy right now, but he is still on the throne. And he knows exactly where he's taking human history. He knows exactly where he's taking my history. And the end of the day is we're going to be part of a perfect kingdom under Christ where all of the enemies are going to be vanquished. There's not going to be any more treachery, no murder, no breaking of laws, no powers to overthrow, no threat to our freedom, no threat to the position of royalty that we enjoy, nobody's going to steal away what we have. Isaiah chapter 9 gives us a very weighty description of the Son of God who has been gifted to us as the one who redeems his people and reigns over them. Much of how we are to live under his care, we're going to cover next week in our study. But to bring our time of worship to a close this morning, I want you to please consider with me what the giving of this child means to your life. How ought we to respond to God's gift? What is going to reflect true Christmas living if we believe in the birth of Christ, the gift of God giving this child to us? How does that affect my living today? Well, first I would answer, we live by faith in him. That is most obvious to us as believers. We live by faith in him. The place that all of us must start is that we are in darkness and we see the light We need a savior. And by repentance and faith, we say, God, you know I'm a sinner. I believe your son, Christ. Would you take me and save me as one of yours? Apart from faith in Christ, there can be no life with God. We have to trust fully in the provision for life in the gift of his son. We also, as now believers, we live by faith in his lordship over our lives. Faith is not merely a one-time experience or a one-time sentiment where at 12 years old I expressed faith and I became a Christian. The moment we come to faith in Christ, that begins a life of living by faith, just as Paul said in Romans 1:17, The just shall 
live by faith. It doesn't mean you express faith at one time and then you move on. The just shall live by faith day by day for the rest of our lives and into eternity. We believe and we keep on believing. So this is the place that all of us must begin. Faith in Christ as the Savior, the child given to us. Secondly, we live in gratitude for him. We live in gratitude for him. If what Isaiah 9 is telling us and the New Testament confirms that Jesus Christ is given to us by God as a gift, God has given graciously this child to us, the response that it must require of us is gratefulness. Something valuable has been given. It is the condition of sinful humanity, remember Romans 1, who suppress the truth of God to not be thankful to him, not honor him as God for who he is or for what he's provided. And I'm convinced that as Christians, one of the greatest failures in our walk of faith is that of not being truly thankful to God for the moment-by-moment, day-by-day gift that we live by. We can say thanks at a time when we specially recognize some super thing that God has done. But this is living moment by moment, day by day in gratitude because we live as those that receive this gift. Once we come to faith in Christ, we have received the gift of life from that moment forward. But consider how much of our day is spent in worry, in disappointment, in frustration, complaining, longing for more temporal pleasures or provisions, or just wrestling with the problems of life. I speak to myself on this. How much of your day, how much of my day is given to that? Because that's not gratitude. How could these attitudes change if we considered more frequently what we are as a people that have received this gift of God? It's a life of gratitude. That's the response. And third, this is most obvious As we look to the future kingdom, we live in anticipation of him. The response to the coming of this Christ child, we live in anticipation. Meaning that our eyes are fixed on his return. Our eyes are fixed on the kingdom that is to come. Our hope is not in this life. Our treasure is not in this life. Not everything's going to work out all that well in this life, is it? And most of you are, are living in some way that the misery, the darkness, and the gloom of this world. We all experience it. I love the perspective of Paul, who in the midst of all the challenges and struggles of gospel ministry and the strengthening of the churches, everything he had on his plate, he understood that his life was a journey toward what is yet to come. So he wrote these words in Philippians 3, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This goal kept Paul's vision fixed on the kingdom to come. He was laboring for the kingdom of God, what he calls the upward call of God. And that's why he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that he anticipated a crown of righteousness that Jesus was going to present to him and to all others who had a love for his what? His appearing. He's anxiously waiting for the kingdom to come. 
for Christ to appear again. If Jesus Christ is the gift of Christmas for all who believe, then our greatest ambition will be to be under his perfect reign. We're going to anticipate this world just is all messed up. But we know what's coming. And it gives us the the zeal, it gives us the ambition to live each gruesome day for the glory of God because we know what's coming. We're anticipating what's coming. And we're going to live with Christ in that reign. We're going to look more at this next week because I believe there's a great deal of practical application in who this Christ child is that's given to us. So with this as a bit of an introduction, let's close in prayer for now. Father in heaven, we join our hearts together and give thanks to you for loving a people in darkness. Even though we face anguish and gloom and oppression in this life, You've brought to us hope. You've brought to us the light of your righteousness and the promise of your rich, rich inheritance to come. And this is all found and realized in your son, Jesus Christ, the child that was given to us. Christmas is a time that we give memorial to that. But Father, I pray for us as believers, it's more than that. It's more than December 25. It's about understanding that we live under that gift. We're part of that gift as we come by faith and are united with your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to have hearts that are grateful. Help us to live each day by faith in you and who you are and trust of you. And help us to live with our eyes wide open, looking toward the prize, the inheritance that is to come, anticipating your son's return, anticipating us being with him and the kingdom of glory that is awaiting us in Christ Jesus. We give you all the praise and the glory. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And now, please stand.